First John chapter two verses twelve through fourteen is the text that Pastor John will be preaching from this morning. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's try to get one obstacle out of the way right off the bat. When John addresses children, fathers, young men... I don't think that he means what he says to each of those groups is true only of them. So that if you're not a father, that's not true of you. I don't think that's the case. Because as you read the whole letter, all those things that are said to children, fathers, and young men are also said of the whole church in other contexts. Which leaves us with the question, how come he addressed these things? Three categories, children, fathers, young men. I'm not sure, but I have a suggestion. I think that John began this section with a desire to encourage and be affectionate with the church. It's a very encouraging passage, as we'll hear in a moment. And so he uses his common term of endearment and affection, children. He doesn't mean the little ones among us. He means all of us. He calls the church children in five other places in this letter. So his first tack is to address the church with his affectionate term as an aged apostle, my children. And then he stops and he thinks. He pauses and he says to himself, why, I I sure don't want this to backfire on me. The venerable old man there and the virile young men among the leadership of the church might feel a little bit uneasy being addressed as children. So perhaps I will address each of these groups of leaders with a personal word. The fathers, he speaks of their knowledge and the young men of their victory. Perhaps. At any rate... When we read it, if we don't happen to be a father or a young man, we ought not to say, oh, that's not for me, because I'm not in that category. Because, in fact, all the things he refers to in this text are true of the whole church. Let's ask another question. How does the statement of why he's writing here fit in with the overall purpose of the letter that we've seen from other places? To answer this, let's try to compare 1 John with a letter that a mother writes to her daughter who is in college. The mother gets word that there's been a rare and strange outbreak of smallpox on campus. Five cases confirmed. Other young people sick in the infirmary. She hears that her daughter is not among the victims, 
But she goes out to look Christian card shop and she buys a card that has a little rhyme on the front of it. It goes like this. I ask not that God give you wealth, but daily beg him for your health. And she turns the card over and she writes on the back, Dear Ruth, don't misunderstand. I'm not writing you out of distress because I think you are among the victims of the smallpox outbreak. On the contrary, I'm rejoicing that you are well. Of course, I don't want you to get sick. Take the necessary precautions. But I write because my heart is full of memories and full of confidence. I recall how once you had measles and your face looked like a prize fighter in the 15th round. And then how you got completely well. I remember how you were so brave back when the smallpox vaccinations in our little town were still given with a piece of broken glass and you took it without a tear and now you've got that protection in your body. You've been so strong and healthy. It seems as I look back that when everybody else was falling with the flu, you hardly got the sniffles. You obviously know some wonderful secret. So hold on to what you've got, Ruth. Take heart in the manifest work of God in your life. Keep yourself in his wonderful health. I am full of joy in the gift of health that we share. Love, Mom. Now, why did she write that letter? What's she up to? Well, she says, I beg God daily for your health. And she wrote, I don't want you to get sick. Take the necessary precautions. Hold on to what you've got. Keep yourself in the wonderful health that God has given you. So it's clear that one of her reasons for writing is to do whatever she can do to motivate her daughter to hold on to that health and not throw it away. But on the other hand, she says, I'm not writing you out of distress. I rejoice that you are well. And she spends most of her time delighting that her daughter is so healthy and has proven to be such a strong person in the past and therefore can be confident that she'll overcome this pox that's going around. Now, what's the relationship between these two strands in this letter? On the one hand, the mother wants to intensify her daughter's appreciation for the health she has and to strengthen her confidence that she can escape sickness. She wants her to hold on, on the other hand, to the health that she's got and do whatever she has to do in order to stay healthy. So the relationship between the two strands seems to be something like this. The appreciation that the daughter has for her present health is to be a motive for the vigilance to take whatever steps are necessary in order to stay healthy. When the daughter sees the value of her health and feels the assurance that she's going to make it through this semester without getting smallpox, she feels a great zeal to do what she needs to do, not to throw away her health on all-night parties and foolish eating and no exercise. Now, it seems to me that 1 John is built on this very same pattern There are two strands in this letter, two strands about why he's writing it. Let me show you these strands. First, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing this to you that you may not sin. Don't get sick. I want you to stay healthy. That strand continues in chapter 2, verse 26, where he says, I write this to you 
about those who would deceive you. Watch out, there are some dangerous germs infecting the community, germs of error that could infect you. Watch out for them. I'm warning you with my letter. But there's another strand in this letter. Chapter 2, verse 21. John says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. I'm not distressed that you've got smallpox. I think you've been inoculated. I think you know the truth. You're guarded from those germs of error. In this our text, chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, I'm writing you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you do know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young man, because you have overcome the evil one. Not because you're sick. You're well. It's great. That's why I'm writing to you. So the strand continues right on to the end. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So just like the mother wants to encourage this daughter that she's going to make it, John wants to encourage them. They have eternal life. No sin is ultimately going to undo their life. They are well. They've been inoculated. Now, what's the relationship between these two strands, the strand of confidence and the strand of vigilance? Strand of assurance and the strand of warning. The relationship seems to be the strand of confidence is intended to motivate vigilance. In other words, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 are given to motivate and encourage so that chapter 2, verse 1 will come true. Namely, I don't want you to sin. John would put the two strands together like this if we ask him to, I think. I think he would say, with regard to these three points in the text, remember what I said back in chapter 1, verse 7, don't go on walking in the darkness because only if you walk in the light does the blood of Jesus cleanse you from all sin. But your sins have been forgiven. Or he would say, don't you remember what I said back in chapter 2, verse 4? Don't go on disobeying the commandments of God because if you go on disobeying, then you show that your claim to know Christ is a lie. But you do know him who is from the beginning. And then I think he would say, with regard to the third point, take heed what I'm going to say over in chapter 3, verse 8. Don't go on sinning because those who sin are of the devil. But you have overcome the evil one. You see how he thinks and how he argues to motivate them to fulfill faith? You are forgiven. You know Christ. You have overcome the devil. So be encouraged. Abide in Christ. Take that truth and that power and use it to fight the germs of error and to conquer temptation to sin. Behind this way of motivating a church lies a very deep insight into human nature. It goes like this. See if this isn't true in your own experience. We can't overcome temptation. We can't escape from the germs of error around us if we feel 
that our sins are not forgiven and that we don't know Christ. He's miles away working somewhere else in the world. And Satan is the victor. If you feel like your sins are not forgiven, Christ is gone and Satan is the victor, where are you going to get any motivation to fight sin, to overcome error? Picture a soldier in a slimy foxhole. Where's this soldier going to get any strength or courage to fight if all he can think about is how he went AWOL last weekend when they were fighting and half his company got wiped out? Where's he going to get any courage if as he lies there, he tries to think that he knew the commander and now the commander's gone. He's working in some other battlefield where there's hope. And how's he going to have any courage or any incentive to fight if, in fact, he looks up and there are 50 enemy soldiers armed standing around the lip of his foxhole pointing their guns down at him? Well, he's not. He's not going to have any incentive or motivation. All that soldier's going to want to do is pull out his pistol and shoot himself. Unless there's hope of winning, there's no motivation to fight. Even soldiers who fight to the death when their whole army has been wiped out are fighting for victory, namely victory over dishonor. The last thing left is their honor. But if that's gone, if all hope is gone, nobody's going to fight. Just roll over and put your face in the mud. Now, John's aim in writing this letter is that we overcome the darkness that settles in on our soul at times like that. He wants us to walk in the light, conquer hate, abound in love to one another with a love that's so real and deep and powerful that the world sees it and gives glory to our Father in heaven. He wants that soldier somehow to feel a twitch of hope so that by some strange source of grace... He reaches for his machine gun and just lays all 50 of them down. Where's that going to come from? He was lying there, hopeless in the mud, thinking about AWOL, the commander's gone, and there's enemies. Where did that come from? Did you notice in the last half of verse 14 what the gun, what the machine gun is? I write to you, young man, because you are strong. How are you strong? The word of God abides in you, and you have wasted the enemy. That's the machine gun, the word of God. But the word of God is also that strange power that came into his heart as he lay there in the mud. And that word of God is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. John and the Holy Spirit conspire to give you a gift this morning. By the grace of God, you can believe it. 
If you believe these words are yours, they're yours. The best news anybody could say to you this morning, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, not yours. Don't you argue back to God and say, oh, I'm not worth forgiving. He knows that. For his sake, your sins are forgiven this morning, if you will have it. Second, you know the one who was from the beginning. God Almighty from all eternity. You know Him. You know you know Him. And third, you in Christ have conquered the evil one. That's the way God puts the gun back in your hands. Why did John repeat these words? It's a very awkward text, isn't it? I write to you, children. I write to you, fathers. I write to you, young men. I wrote to you, children. I wrote to you, fathers. I wrote to you. What's going on here? What? There's nothing like that in all the New Testament. That's baffled scholars for 2,000 years why he repeated himself almost verbatim like that. And it baffles me. I don't know. But I got an idea. When you're in a pit with your face in the mud, you may not hear it the first time. Don't you repeat things when you really want them to get heard and you know people might not hear them? I think John really wants us to hear this this morning. Hey, kids, old and young alike, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a tough letter. Is it the main point of this letter is you can know you have hope in the mud when you start shooting. That's the main point of this letter. That's not this morning's point. That's the main point of the letter. That's a tough point. And John knows if that's all you say to a people, it's not enough. You've got to come in to the person who doesn't have any energy to shoot, can't reach for his gun, his face in the mud. He went AWOL last weekend. The commander's gone. The enemy is all around him. What are you going to say to him, John? And John says, I'll tell him his sins are forgiven. I'll tell him he knows the one who is from the beginning. And I'll tell him the enemy is defeated. Grab your gun. Start shooting. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. 